Good morning, everybody, and a special welcome to visitors, including a minister friend of mine. So that's lovely to see you with us and your good lady. It's great to be here together. We are here to worship God. Some words to lead us into worship. This is the time to worship God who brings us life. This is a time to sing God's praise, who brings us joy. This is the time to pray to God, who brings us forgiveness and renewal. This is a time to hear God's word, who brings us guidance and hope. This is the time to show our love for God, who brings us love beyond our deserving. And now let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray together. God of the morning, active before we wake, we bring you our praise and adoration. Silent, invisible, undetectable, you have sustained all creation and continue to do so. As we enjoy the everyday blessing of life itself, we thank you for this new day. God of the daytime, with us in all our endeavours, we bring to you our thoughts and actions. Knowing that you delight in our unique personalities and creativity, knowing that you forgive our faults and failings, whether deliberate or unintended. God of the evening, still hard at work as we once more take our rest. We know that we can make our prayers with confidence, that you hear and respond And we know that we can find security in your continued presence with us. God of all times. God of this time. God who is with us in Christ. Accept our prayers offered in his name. Amen. Paul is having a well-earned day off today, so we're not singing a psalm, we're reading a psalm. If you could turn with me to number 660 at the back of the hymn book. Those who know about monasteries in days of yore will know that they would have monks sitting either side of the aisle and they would take turnabouts to read a line of the psalm to each other so that you get a feel of speaking the words to one another. And so we're going to do something roughly like that. It's always interesting working out when you do this dividing bit. I think if we make it easy for ourselves, that group and those in the snug, if you do the words in the bold type, so that's the second part, and the front middle section and choir and visitors and Sunday school, we'll do those in Ordinary type, which I will kick off, so don't panic. And we read these words of the psalm together. The world and all that is in it belong to the Lord. The earth and all the living ones are His. Who 
The Lord will bless them and save them. God will declare them innocent. Such are the people who come to God, who come into the presence of the God of Israel. Fling wide the gates, open the ancient doors, and the great King will come in. Who is this great King? First reading is on page 115 of the New Testament, the Pew Bibles, Luke chapter 24 from verse 36. This uh, follows immediately on the story of the encounter on the Emmaus, on the Emmaus Road. While the two were telling them this, that is the other disciples, Suddenly the Lord himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were terrified, thinking that they were seeing a ghost. But he said to them, Why are you alarmed? Why are these doubts coming up in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet and see that it is I myself. Feel me and you will know For a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. He said this and showed them his hands and his feet. They still could not believe. They were so full of joy and wonder. So he asked them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of cooked fish, which he took and ate in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the very things I told you about while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the writings of the prophets, and the Psalms had to come true. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, This is what is written, the Messiah must suffer and must rise from death three days later. And in his name, The message about repentance and the forgiveness of sins must be preached to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I myself will send upon you what my Father has promised. But you must wait in the city until the power from above comes down upon you. Then he led them out of the city as far as Bethany, where he raised his hands and blessed them. And as he was blessing them, he departed from them and was taken up into heaven. They worshipped him and went back into Jerusalem, filled with great joy, and spent all their time in the temple, giving thanks to God. Then from the very first verses of the book of Acts, Page 147. Dear Theophilus, 
In my first book, I wrote about all the things that Jesus did and taught from the time he began his work until the day he was taken up to heaven. Before he was taken up, he gave instructions by the power of the Holy Spirit to the men he had chosen as his apostles. For forty days after his death, he appeared to them many times in ways that proved beyond doubt that he was alive. They saw him, and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. And when they came together, he gave them this order, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift I told you about, the gift my father promised. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. When the apostles met together with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time give the kingdom back to Israel? Jesus said to them, the times and occasions are set by my Father's own authority, and it is not for you to know when they will be. But when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be filled with power, and you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up to heaven as they watched him, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They still had their eyes fixed on the sky as he went away, when two men in white suddenly stood beside them. And to the very last passage of Acts, chapter 28, from verse 16. Page 186. When we arrived in Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier guarding him. After three days, Paul called the local Jewish leaders to a meeting. When they had gathered, he said to them, My fellow Israelites, even though I did nothing against our people or the customs that we received from our ancestors, I was made a prisoner in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. After questioning me, the Romans wanted to release me because they found that I had done nothing for which I deserved to die. But when the Jews opposed this, I was forced to appeal to the emperor, even though I had no accusation to make against my own people. That is why I asked you to see, I asked to see you and talk with you. As a matter of fact, I am bound in chains like this for the sake of him for whom the people of Israel hope. They said to him, We have not received any letters from Judea about you, nor have any of our people come from there with any news or anything bad to say about you. But we would like to hear your ideas, because we know that everywhere people speak against this party to which you belong. So they fixed a date with Paul, and a large number of them came that day to the place where Paul was staying. 
From morning till night he explained to them his message about the kingdom of God. And he tried to convince them about Jesus by quoting from the law of Moses and the writings of the prophets. Some of them were convinced by his words, but others would not believe. So they left, disagreeing among themselves, after Paul had said this one thing, how well the Holy Spirit spoke through the prophet Isaiah to your ancestors. For he said, Go and say to this people, You will listen and listen, but not understand. You will look and look, but not see. Because this people's minds are dull. They have stopped up their ears and closed their eyes. Otherwise, their eyes would see, their ears would hear, their minds would understand, and they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. And Paul concluded, You are to know then that God's message of salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. For two years, Paul lived in a place he rented for himself, and there he welcomed all who came to see him. He preached about the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking with boldness and freedom. And now on HBC One, Easter Endings. Previously on Easter Endings, bar doors and beach barbecues in John's double ending as fearful, questioning disciples meet the risen Jesus. Terrified women flee in silence and fail to satisfy Mark's readers who offer at least two alternative conclusions to tidy up his account. And four alls characterize Matthew's story which ends in the reassurance of Christ's perpetual presence. And now... We move on to Luke, the only two-part gospel, or certainly the only one with an extant sequel. The only one that carries the story on beyond the events of Easter Sunday or the immediate period immediately following on from that. As we reach the end of the gospel, and the, sorry, as we read the end of the gospel and the beginning of the book of Acts, we get a sense that's not unlike that of watching one of those two-part television dramas. I don't know about you, but nowadays I've noticed that you always end looking forward to the next part, and you always start looking back to the last part. Gone are the days of just having a cliffhanger and you've got to wait to find out what's coming next. For anybody who doesn't know, those are the EastEnders drums but I think most people kind of got it. As I worked through the text this week, it seemed quite helpful to keep in mind this idea of the looking forward, looking back, the cliffhanger way of doing it. I think that's very helpful because probably as you heard those two accounts read one after the other, the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, you might have thought, ooh, didn't think it said that. Ooh, that's a bit different. If we took literally the end of Luke as it's written, the people come in from Emmaus, they share the story, 
Jesus appears. He tells the people what to do. They all go out. They walk up to Bethany. Jesus blesses them and disappears. If we listen alone to the story from Acts, we find that actually there is around about 40 days which Jesus appears in various places and then he ascends to heaven on the Mount of Olives, which is pretty close to Bethany, so I don't think we need to get too wound up about that. Sometimes we get too worried about trying to meld those together perfectly and actually miss the point, I think. It's not about making the two match perfectly. It's that somehow this writer was inspired by God to tell this story this way, And we listen to find out what that might be. Just as with the three other Gospels that we've listened to, we have three questions as we look at today's readings. Why did the writer choose to end the story, and in this case, each of the two volumes, in the way that they did? What difference would it make if this was the only Gospel account that we had which, as we've reminded ourselves over the last few weeks, would have been the case for a lot of Christians in the early centuries. And what difference does this particular slant make for our lives of faith and discipleship? It won't surprise you to know that just like everybody else, Luke has its own unique approach to telling the story of Jesus. And as it continues on into Acts, the story of the early church as it spread out through Asia Minor, reaching Rome. Rome, which would become the centre of the Western church for more than a thousand years. Rome, which in some traditions is still seen as the centre of the Christian church. Some scholars argue that Luke's readership is Gentile, and certainly when I was at school a very long time ago, That is what we were told, that this is a Gentile gospel for Gentile readers. But other scholars are not so sure. They spot clear Jewish hints and influences in this gospel. Whoever he was writing for is less important than the fact that it's quite clear that this is a late gospel. It specifically says, I have made a careful study of other accounts in order to prepare what I send to you, Theophilus. It's quite clear from things that are in the Gospel that he used the same sources as Mark and Matthew, and quite possibly John, as well as others that have long since disappeared from our canonical accounts. Needless to say, there's plenty of scholarly speculation about who Theophilus was. It's a name that means lover of God, so some people wonder if it's a real name. But actually, most people seem to think that, yep, there was a guy called Theophilus to whom it was written. And this person might well have commissioned this particular gospel. He wanted to know what this story was. So please, will you, Luke, collect it all together for me? Irrespective of any of that, there is certainly unique material at either end of Luke's gospel which is important for those who read it. For example, think about where Luke begins his story. After his dear Theophilus bit, 
He's in the temple. In fact, he's in the inner sanctum of the temple with an elderly priest making a sacrifice and having a divine encounter. And his last sentence is back in the temple with 11 disciples spending all their time there. Luke is the only person who gives us a glimpse into Jesus' childhood. Guess where that is? In the temple. And Luke is the only one who actually explicitly includes an account of Jesus' ascension. There is a unique gospel with unique things to tell us because it has a unique slant. The final chapter of Luke starts, like all the other accounts, with the women going to the tomb and discovering that Jesus has gone. Luke has two men in shining clothes who announce the resurrection to the women. He names three women, but mentions there are others. These women go back and report to the disciples. Peter visits the tomb and finds it's empty, apart from the linen wrappings, and he goes home. Then, straight away, we jump to the Emmaus Road encounter. Nobody yet, it seems, has seen Jesus. The tomb is empty, the women have a message, but we have no account of anybody seeing Jesus until Cleopas and the unnamed disciple witness him on the road to Emmaus. We only find out after that, in the part that that um, Graham read for us, that Peter has seen Jesus, but we don't know where that fitted. And it's only an oblique reference to it. It's not, and here's a visit of Jesus to Peter. The first proper encounter we hear about is Cleopas and Cleopas's friend, maybe Cleopas's wife. And so we pick up the story as the Emmaus Road disciples are come back to the house where the eleven and others were staying And as they share the story, Jesus appears. The first reaction of the people in that room is to think that this is a ghost, a disembodied spirit, not a resurrected Jesus. How do we know that? Well, because of what Luke chooses to tell us. Jesus says, come and look at my hands and my feet. Come and touch me. This is not just about identifying him as Jesus and seeing that he has holes in his hands and his feet, but actually it demonstrates his physical presence. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. You try to touch a ghost and you fall through. But it seems that seeing and touching are not enough. Although they are joyful, quite understandably, they are totally bewildered dead, alive, not here, here. So Jesus asks them for something to eat and they give him a piece of cooked fish. This is one of the reasons why people think he has some of the same sources as John because John has the barbecue on the beach. And I wonder what thoughts went through their mind as they tentatively held out that piece of fish. You know, would it just actually fall on the floor and they look Awfully, awfully stupid. Or was it indeed the case that Jesus was alive and standing with them? 
Luke wants to make it very clear to his readers that this is not an apparition. This is not mass hallucination, but a real physical Jesus returned to life. In a sense, it's a reminder of the humanity of Jesus. Then, having had his piece of fish, Jesus repeats what he's already done to the two Emmaus road friends, opening up the scriptures and helping them to understand how they refer to him. And he commissions them, go and preach the message of repentance and forgiveness to all nations, starting in Jerusalem. And then there's a kind of vague reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. He leads them out of Jerusalem to Bethany, blesses them and goes to heaven. Now, this is really important to his story. It's as important as eating the fish. If the physicality was a demonstration of Jesus' humanity, the ascension is a demonstration of his divinity. In a first-century worldview, going up a hill meant going closer to God, with the potential for a divine encounter. But in Hellenistic understanding... Ascension to heaven, going beyond this world, this physicality, was a sign of divinity or divinization. You find in a lot of the Greek myths the story of ascension of the gods. So in these few words, the dual nature of Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine, is expressed. But only if you have eyes to see. And so, as he draws his first volume to a close, Luke has made some very bold claims about Jesus Christ. Human, divine. Dead, risen, ascended. And volume one closes with the disciples going back to Jerusalem and spending all their time in the temple giving thanks to God. So what do we do with that ending? How do we handle the fact that we're left not just in Jerusalem, but in the temple, the very heart of Judaism? How do we handle that there is a commission to preach the message? How do we handle the fact that there is a promise as yet unfulfilled? This gospel leaves us hanging A sense that as we read the final sentence, we have the first century equivalent of that boom, 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 boom at the end of EastEnders. Or the words, to be continued, appearing across the screen. I wonder what you think. Are you left waiting for the next instalment? Or are you happy to stop there? bit of a daft question really, isn't it? Because we have the second volume, the book of Acts. We take it for granted it's there. It's in the canon of scripture. I've already mentioned how as we look at the ending of the gospel and the beginning of Acts, we can find ourselves diverted into looking at the differences rather than realizing that one is a looking forward to next time and the other one a looking back to last time. The first ten verses of the first chapter of Acts are a kind of a linkage. We discover there was a substantial period of time after the resurrection in which many people had encounters with Jesus, 
before the ascension. We're reminded of the promise of God, the promise of the Holy Spirit, for which they are still waiting at this point, and of the commission to the disciples to be witnesses for Christ in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are left with bewildered disciples gawping into space, wondering what's going on. But then Luke takes us on. They do eventually get their act together, and there is a story to tell, and what a story. We talked earlier about adventure stories, about crime stories, about Stories with fish and water and things in them. It's amazing that actually an awful lot of that appears in the book of Acts. The adventures of the disciples going to different places. The murder of Stephen. The journeys. The places they visited. The things they shared. The arguments they had. The beginning of persecution by the Jewish authorities and the Romans. The conversion of Saul. The debates and the fallouts between the leaders. The amazing stories of those early faith communities who met and shared everything. Fascinating story that takes us on an unknown period. We have to be careful not to try and piece together the history too closely. But many, many years are covered in that, that story. But how does the story end? Is it mission accomplished? Good television drama style, silent witness sorted in two parts? anything but. We are left in Rome and Paul is under house arrest. We have heard that at least two occasions he met with members of the local synagogue and he did exactly the same as Jesus had done. He explained the law and the prophets and how they pointed towards Jesus and going on to conclude that this is a message to be sent on to the Gentiles. For at least two years, Paul welcomed visitors to his home where he speaks boldly about the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're left hanging because no one knows for sure what happened to Paul. Did he live to a ripe old age and die in his sleep? Did he ever get free from house arrest? What happened next? We don't know. It's almost as if we hear that drumbeat again. Not so long ago, I was chatting to somebody, and they said to me they wondered if Luke had planned to write volume three, taking the story still further. And that's kind of ruminated around in my brain for a while. Could it be that there was volume one and volume two, and then... Volume 3. I think that's a really interesting idea. And I have a suspicion, in a sense, it's right, if not literally, at least metaphorically. I think the message that perhaps we need to hear today is that the to be continued is spoken not just to second century believers in Jesus, but to each one of us here and now. It's quite interesting for those of us who are interested in Baptist history and stuff. A lot of looking back 400 years at the moment with a view to looking forwards. How does reading the old stories shape our present so that we carry on 
and write the new stories tomorrow. Church historians have catalogued for 2,000 years aspects of witness and mission. But the story carries on, written in the lives of ordinary people. To John's Beach Barbecue, to Mark's terrified silence, to Matthew's commission and promise, to Luke's ascension, to Paul's proclamation from prison, we add our own to be continued. And now let us bring our prayers for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we recall how you appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how, at first, they did not realize that it was indeed their Lord. But in the sharing of a meal, their eyes were opened and they recognized who you were. And so it is with us, in the busyness of our lives and in our preoccupation with so many cares and concerns, we too fail to recognize you as you come alongside us in the daily task and common round. Help us, dear Lord, to capture again the blessedness of the awareness of your presence as you accompany us on every step of the way as we seek to put our trust in you. We give thanks for the many gifts and blessings we enjoy, for health and strength, for food and shelter, for the opportunities of education, and for meaningful employment whereby we might serve our fellow citizens. We give thanks for peace and stability in our nation and for sound government and civil society. Above all, we give thanks for peace in our land, although conflict still rages in many parts of the world and thousands long for an end to hostilities. So we realize that each and all of these blessings rest on fragile ground and are subject to many threats and disturbances. Even a cursory examination of history reveals how easily peace has been overturned. And in our own day, because of global communications, we are now instantly aware of strife and civil war in so many parts of the world. And similarly, we are conscious that many nations do not enjoy the advantages we have of universal free education and health care, of unemployment benefits, pensions and all the other support provided by our welfare systems. Lord, we would pray today for all those who suffer hunger and thirst, sickness and poor housing, all those who lack opportunities for work and the chance to support their children and old people. Lord, we pray that through the actions of right-minded governments and aid agencies, change may be brought about to eliminate the afflictions of so many of your children. And may we too show our concern by our giving, our personal commitment and our political action to bring to bear whatever influence we can in striving for a fairer and more just world. And in a week when we are privileged to express our democratic will in the ballot box, we would pray for all politicians and leaders of political parties that no matter the emphasis of their policies, that they may set aside personal ambition or gain and seek the welfare of all the people that they pledge to serve. And may we too be prepared to act as responsible citizens in whatever avenues are open to us in our own local community. 
O God, our Father, we would also pray today for the church in our land. So often it is caricatured as weak and powerless, almost an irrelevance in the modern-day Western world. And yet, although there are undoubtedly signs of numerical decline, nonetheless the church can still exert a significant influence. And not only because we believe we can provide a moral compass in the secular world, but also because we know that your message, as declared in the Gospel so long ago, still has power to speak to the minds and hearts of those who are prepared to live the Christian life. In the complexity of the modern world, where the marvels of science and technology have improved the lot of so many, we may often feel that the message declared to simple rural people so long ago can have little to say to us today. But that early great commandment, which asks us to love God and our fellows, can still exert its ancient power. And we would pray that as each of us seeks to reflect on the meaning of the gospel stories, that we will be renewed in our faith and in our resolve to serve you as our master, no matter what the cost. As well as commending to you the needs of the world and of the church universal, today we would also pray for our own church here at Hillhead. For almost 129 years, this community of your people has sought to follow the Christian way. The gospel has been faithfully preached here. Christian education has expressed the faith and enlightened our worship and witness so that over the years many have served you faithfully, sometimes heroically in the mission field, many at home as they exercise their vocation in a wide range of professions and callings. And even to our present day, we give thanks for the leadership of our ministers and those who have served this church as managers of office bearers, teachers, musicians, and in simple faithful attendance and financial support for all our endeavours. We realise that so many, that for so many, their weekly attendance at church has empowered them to witness and to serve faithfully in home and family, in work and in their community. And so we pray that just as we have been blessed all down those years, we may go forward from here in the same confidence that we are held safely in your hands, whatever may befall. Finally, we pray as individuals for your blessing on us today. Only you may know the secrets of our hearts. Only you may know our fears and our anxieties for ourselves and for those we love. And thus we seek to realize again that same presence of our Master, which was shown to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and in, that, in the light of that appearance, our hearts may be filled with new faith and confidence. So hear our prayers now, for we know that you love us as if we were the only one to love. For we ask it in the name of that same Jesus. Amen. Send us out from here to write the next chapter of the story of salvation in our words and in our deeds, knowing that wherever we go, you, our triune God, are with us today and always.